0: Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, brought to you by Martel Cognac. I'm Joe Bulmore, I'll be your host for the day, and I'm joined this afternoon in Duke's Hotel by David Spencer-Percival, the serial entrepreneur behind Number 1 Rosemary Water and now Number 1 Botanicals, a new range of botanically-infused drinks with various health-giving properties. It's a brilliant story. David is a true wit and raconteur with an infectious energy for entrepreneurship. And in this fascinating conversation, he tells us how a chance encounter in a car park changed his life forever, why he decided suddenly one day to sell all his worldly possessions, and how a tiny village in the Italian hills might just hold the secret to a long and healthy life. David, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's
1: Journal podcast. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You're the founder and CEO of number one, Rosemary Water, to give it its full name. <laughs> um, but you're also kind of a serial entrepreneur who's done lots and lots of things in the past. And I wonder, what were you like as a child? Were you one of the kids in the playground selling football
1: stickers? And um, Gosh, it's a good question. Um, I left school at 16, actually. I got kind of bored. Academically, I was quite bright and uh, fast, not so much as accurate. Um, but I did joy school and then I got very bored of it so I didn't carry on with education. I wasn't the guy who was sort of, you know, selling stuff in, in the school playground. Um, but I do remember being relatively mischievous. So right. I think I have probably have a bit of a problem with authority, okay. which I think drives a lot of entrepreneurs because they don't like to be managed, I guess. So unless you're your own boss, you kind of end up, uh, uh, you know, being that person. So Yeah. And what was your first job after you left school at 16? Uh, To the thrill of my parents, I uh, joined Lloyds Bank uh, at the age of 16. Wow. Yeah, and I was quite uh, motivated then. I became the youngest cashier ever in Lloyds Bank at 16 and sort of, you know, saw a career in banking. And was this in your hometown? This was a local? Yeah, at Chorley Wood Branch which is really quite uh, suburban and remote. Okay. Um, and it was incredibly dull. I asked to get moved to London and they put me in Wilsdon Green which is sort of like, you know, the epicentre of fraud in banking. Um, and uh, yeah, it was quite quite interesting. But I, I soon left and, and went to work in fashion. Yeah. To the horror of my parents.
0: Right, and there's photos <laughs> we were talking about earlier circulating <laughs> with you with very long hair In a a dubious (laughs) suit,
1: but were you very fashionable? You a man about town? Um, I I guess so. Yeah, I I, I was one of those. You know, I'm I'm a child of acid house and Thatcher. (laughs) I, I hit my teens at the point when. House music sort of started to explode, and okay. that whole uh, mixing of of, of of a kind of a new drug, a new uh, music, and and clubs just hit me at seventeen years old, and really it just consumed my life for an awfully long time. Um, you know, the pilgrimages to Ibiza, growing your hair long—it was just a rite of passage for my generation, yeah. um, and I was you know, yeah hedonistically followed it.
0: Yeah. Did you have any intention of locking down a proper
1: job and starting a no. business? I mean, honestly, I. I just can't even remember growing up until I was 26 when I came out of this haze. Um, and, but I had a terrific time. You know, they do say if you sort of get it out of your system early, you sort of don't end up having midlife crises and yeah. sort of buying Harley Davidson stuff at 50. Um, so I, I guess I kind of I really got it out of my system I probably you know, a few years too long. But working in fashion, you just kind of, that's what you do. You know, you go to parties, you look great and you hang out with you know, cool and beautiful people. Um, but there is a point when you sort of have to grow up a bit. And I, yeah. uh, but it just hit me quite late. <laughs> Right, and growing up for you was
0: you moved into recruitment, which is a long way from fashion. It's not, it's not trendy. It's not cool. I, no,
1: it really isn't. Um, wasn't, and uh, but you seem to earn sort of lots of money, and I guess that's what attracted me to it. I, I remember going to the interview. I didn't even have a proper suit. I had a quite a fashiony suit, and I had long hair, and I had to tie it back. Um, I remember the guy interviewing me, sort of looking at me, thinking, you're never going to get this job. And only because my friend works there, and she said to this guy, he'll be really good, you know, he's, mm. he's a bright he's a bright guy, and they just sort of almost felt sorry for me. Um, and from that point, I remember sitting there in this office thinking, this is, I can do this, and these people are... No cleverer, no better than yeah. I am, and they're they're all you know, hugely successful in this genre. And I just remember being then becoming that obsession with sort of fashion, you know, music, and, and and that whole scene. Then switch to, okay, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna make some money now, and right. and got caught on that kind of drug. Really,
0: what was the skill set that you saw
1: in yourself? What was useful? Was it? I guess um, a nap. I mean, sales really is what it is. And I don't think you can teach sales. I think you are a salesperson. And and my father was a salesperson. I think you have that natural sort of sales um, charisma, if you call it. Um, I didn't have an awful lot else that I could do, but I knew I could sell things. And I think that's really what took me through. Um, When it comes to sort of administration and stuff like that, it just was awful. (laughs) But, But actually, you know... Doing what I was supposed to do, which was which was sell, I, you know, I became I just became really really good at it, and very 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 quickly became sort of you know the best, yeah, um, and really cocky with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> what was there? Was there a big moment when you realised that you were kind of at the top of your game. Was there a big purchase? Yeah, no, there was. I, I I did so well at my company that my uh, chairman said to me, he said, if you do this, I'll buy you an Aston Martin. And he never thought I would do it. And I did it. And what I went was back the, to him What so, was the target?
0: What was the challenge? Uh,
1: it was, I had to make a 100,000 a month billing profit for the company or something. And I did it. Nobody had ever done it before. And I went to him and said, you need to buy me an Aston Martin now. He's was like, oh, God, wish I'd never said it. Uh, so he did, he did. He was a man of his word. And he bought me, and then DB7 had just come out. And I remember going, picking up this car off the forecourt, and the prodigy were there, picking up theirs. (laughs) And I felt like a rock star. (laughs) And I remember driving away, and I was 28 years old, I think I was, and I thought to myself... It's just pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it was James Bond.
0: You know? Yeah. <laughs>
1: so yeah. Uh, that was the moment, I think.
0: And in fact, that Aston Martin, if I'm right, there was a kind of chance encounter involving that in a car park. Was this? Yeah, advantage? I
1: know that. And the next part of the career was quite interesting. So I, I, and this is really where I suppose I became an entrepreneur, if you like. I drove the car into a car park every day and parked it and went off to work. And there was a guy when I came back one one evening looking at the car, and he said, Wow, this is a really cool car. They've just come out, and nobody had really seen them before. He said, you must be like a city trader or something. And I said, no, I, I kind of work in recruitment. And he said, oh, you must be really good. And I was so cocky. I was like, yeah, I'm the best. <laughs> he said, look, I'm going to start up a company. Why don't you come talk to me? And I went and had uh, lunch with him the next day and set up a new business. I The car went. My salary went. I went home to my... Wife, who very recently got married to, and said, "I'm giving it all up—the salary, the car. You know, we had a beautiful apartment. The whole lot went, and I started again with equity in this company. I mean, cut to seven years later, we sold that company for a hundred million dollars. So it was a it was a a gamble that paid off, but it was a big gamble at the time. Yeah, I think that's the first time I thought I'm a risk taker.
0: Right, but you you were confident even then that it might work out.
1: I think I had the confidence to um, take the knocks if it didn't. Yeah. Mm. I think I have in boundless confidence. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and there's that expression that luck is where preparation
0: meets opportunity.
1: Yeah, mm. it's interesting, luck. Um harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, it was really hard work. I learned a lot. I worked incredibly hard. It was completely relentless. I hardly had any holidays. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and I think that comes through motivation as well. Because if you're not motivated, you just can't – you haven't got it in you to do it. Yeah. If you're motivated – I mean, the, the luck does play a part. I think we had a lucky timing with the sale of the company because three months after we sold it, the whole world economy collapsed, yeah. and the company was worth half what we sold it for. So timing was good, luck was there, but my God, it was hard. I mean, I worked so hard. So yeah. you know, I look back at it and think, Phew, blimey, that was you know, that was a job <laughs> A young well man's done. game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Would you start that company now? Well after that I, I we sold that company, I then set up the second company with um a terrific entrepreneur called Sir Peter Ogden, a really, really inspiring guy. He backed me, and I did exactly the same thing again, exactly the same uh, numbers took it to hundred million turnover um but I couldn't do it the third time i mean that was it was really really full-on global business traveling round around the world three four times a year, always jet lagged mm. you know it's easy it young by forty you're just burnt out
0: yeah. And if we go back to Huntress, which was your first yes. recruitment company, that was doing very well and kind of winning awards and you got incredibly Yeah, quickly. we
1: uh, we won. I mean, Sunday Times Fast Track is probably um, a, a good indicator of a good business. Mm. Is that it, it, it ranks you against your peers um, and, and the, the, the entire market. So to get into that is quite a hard thing to do. It's the fastest growing companies in the country. To do it once is challenging. Um, I've been in it seven times now, and with my last company, four times in a row. So you have to each year compete with all these new startups that are growing exponentially. Um, So that was pretty good, and it culminated, I guess, in the Queen's Award, where I met the Queen, which was amazing. Um, (laughs) What did you say to her? I completely froze. Did you? I mean... I said to my wife as we were walking through to meet her, I said, "Let me do the talking," <laughs> and uh, I can't stay in front of her. And I just throw. i mean it was the Queen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's on the you know the notes and the coins that you use. Uh, and my wife said, "Well, I'll talk." Then she sort of said, "Oh, then. I'm my like, David Spence personal you know." And and it was quite uh, quite a thing. Going into Buckingham Palace in the entrance where you see them all come out for the royal weddings yeah. is quite something. So that's wow. yeah, pretty cool. And then I won Entrepreneur of the Year at the National Business Awards, which I have to say was pretty thrilling because I. I I genuinely didn't think I was going to win it. I was up against James Kahn from Dragon's yeah. Den, I was up against Alex Chesterman from Zoopla, and then they announced it, this spotlight comes around, there's like 2,000 people in this room. And I looked at someone and I said, like, oh, you know, I've won it. And then I go up on stage, and uh, interviewed by Sky and that, so that was quite something. Yeah. So it was a business awards, and you know, I got a bathroom full of awards, but yeah, it was quite something. You decided to throw that all in.
0: <laughs> And start again from scratch. And you sold your house, your, your house in the
1: Cotswolds. Yep. Yeah. sold yep. all your classic cars. I did. Damien Hirst paintings. Everything. Yeah. I was getting a little bit comfortable. Right. And I wanted to challenge myself. I knew I could do that particular job. Um, but I didn't want to do that job for the rest of my life. Mm. So I... I um, I guess I, it came about, I read an article in a newspaper, it was as simple as that. I was sitting there one one uh, afternoon, um, and my wife was reading the same article, more or less at the same time, about this tiny village in Italy called Aciroli. And I was slightly fascinated by it, because I'd read that these people were living to such a long age, relatively illness-free, in this tiny little village, and it seemed to be quite big news. And the scientists had gone down there, and they were sort of trying to find what this differentiator was. It's tens of thousands of Mediterranean villages but none with this high density of centenarians and he said because they eat rosemary and I remember reading the article and I thought hmm note to self must eat more rosemary want to live to 100 um, and then about a week later I kept thinking about this article and I thought to myself there is no way I'm going to eat rosemary every day I mean I just Do they don't they live, live that they kind just of eat life. It they eat it more raw, off yeah. the tree raw. I suppose yeah, yeah. So I thought to myself, I'm never going to get into my diet like that. You know, I'm in London, I go to restaurants, it's just never going to happen. So I thought, oh, I'll just drink it. It seemed perfectly rational to me. Went on to Google, typing in rosemary water, and I just I couldn't find anywhere that sold it. And I think that was the first time I thought to myself, ooh, that's interesting, mm. that's a, an avenue I could go down. And I remember again saying to my wife, I, th- I think I'm going to make some rosemary water. And you could just see it in her face, she's like, oh, not again she just finished doing up this house. Yeah. She knew we were going to sell it. Um, and I went back to Sir Peter Ogden and I said, Peter, I'm I'm going to sell my shares and I'm, I'm I'm going to start up a water drinks company. Right. And again, he sort of looked at me as if to say, you are completely mad. Um, but I thought to myself, you know what? No one's made this drink. It didn't exist. I think it should exist. I think somebody should make it. I knew it would be expensive and relatively time-consuming and, mm. and, and pretty intense because... But the main thing is I wanted to prove to myself I could do something other than what I was really good at. Yeah. But massive risk, huge risk.
0: Are you very Again. impulsive in general, do you think?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. long between reading that article
0: on that morning and quitting your other job? About two months. Two months.
1: Yeah. I think, and we launched the drinks within three months. Wow. Um, It was really fast. What did your friends and family say when you said you were going to make... I think you're mad. Like, I mean, <laughs> the conversation with my mother. You're going to do what? You're going to give up this enormous salary, house, extremely comfortable living and great business to go and set up a water that doesn't exist. What makes you think anyone's going to drink it? And I guess, you know, you have those conversations. You think, yeah, okay, I, I understand what you're thinking, but I, I had utter conviction about it. and I, I didn't care. I, I, I wanted to do it. And I yeah. think that was... You know, the problem is with people who are going to business, everyone has an opinion and if you listen to everybody, you never get anything done. And I think sometimes you just have to shut everything down and say, I don't care what you think. I know you think I'm mad. I know you think I'm having some sort of crisis, going completely crazy. I believe in it, and that's all that matters. Yeah. And that's, that's what happened. Did you do any kind of market research? Was there a big demand for a rosemary water? I, did, I didn't do anything. No. I didn't know anything about the drinks industry, even to the point where we had this guy coming from Diageo, a very senior guy, he was president of, of um, Africa and Asia, and we presented the drink to him, said, Right, we're launching this in Harvey Nichols in two weeks' time. And he went, Amazing. He said, So, you know, what did everyone think about it? We said, What do you mean, what did everyone think about it? He said, Well, when you did the sort of, you know, the market research and tests, we went, well, well, Bonita and I, my wife did it across the table. We had these pipettes and we were going, Should we put that much in? Oh, that tastes a bit strong. No, let's do that much. He went, Are you going to launch a drink that no one's ever tasted? Yeah. And we said, and My wife, as quick as anything, said, I don't like it. They went, Buy it. And that was kind of what we just saw. I didn't know anything about bottling, marketing, and I thought that was quite exciting. Other people thought it was a little bit mad. Um, But I just like approaching things from what, it's not what everybody else does. It's, why are they doing it like that? I've got a million stories about rosewater when we're sitting in the factory and they said you can't do that. Why can't you do it? Well, because nobody else does it. Well, why don't they do it? And you know, sometimes you get to the bottom of it, and the reasons people don't do things is because they've been doing it the other way for so long, and nobody's even thought about it. So that's what I thought was quite, quite good and challenging. And then when we launched it, it was just a huge success, even though we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah.
0: And what was kind of the first step? I imagine you can't just take rosemary and soak it in water oh no that's the first that. thing we learned yeah. <laughs> yeah so i remember
1: sitting with these uh, drinks guys who produce and 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 so the first thing you do is you're going to make the drink and i sat in front of these guys and i said right you're going to have to sign an nda they went right okay we make hundreds of drinks mate by the way i said i don't care you've got to sign an nda just so sign the nda I said right we're going to make rosemary water and they looked at each other and went yeah are we why is that then <laughs> And then I proceeded to tell them the story of this village in Italy where they're all living to 100, relatively illness free, and the scientists think it's because they're eating rosemary. And you can see these guys thinking, oh, it's such a good idea, why didn't we think of that? They said, right, the first thing you need to understand is we don't do extracts, we only do flavours. Okay. He said, got, we could put flavour in it. I went, no, 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 no. Whatever these villages are eating, we have to put into the drink they said that is botanical science you need to go and see these botanical scientists Mm. and that started on a complicated journey of extraction of 32 compounds inside rosemary into a liquid that we can put inside a drink it would have been so easy to make a flavour and an essence but we did it the hard way the expensive way but what we have is authenticity and Again, that's something that I just don't think a major drinks company would have done. Yeah, But it was essential for me to do that. And, yeah, I learned a lot about botanical science, a lot. And um, have you been to the village in Italy? I have, yeah. I've met the mayor of the village as well. He's quite a sort of superstar in Italy. Um, the village is beautiful. You know, you go through the um, suburbs of the Naples, and Naples sounds such a beautiful place. It's, it's not. It's sort of like bombed-out sort of... Route in the 70s um, and you, you drive about an hour through these horrible sort of tower blocks which are really, really quite scary and then you become into this sort of road that's kind of like fairly industrial farming which isn't very pretty and then suddenly 20 minutes before this village it's like Shangri-La you open out it's almost like Big Sur in California you know you've got the sea uh, to the side of you and these wonderful cliff things and then you drop down into this tiny fishing village where one in ten people are over 100 years old and they're just—it's just weird because they're, they're drinking and they're smoking and they're just—they're li- not like yoga, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like LA bunnies, you know. They are—they're just Italian. They're just living life and they're living long. And it's just a bit weird.
0: Were you sceptical when you first heard that of course, science? Yeah. What, what did you did you do any kind of? Research yourself. Did you hire scientists? I did. To
1: I spoke to um, the professor who did the trials. Yeah. Um, I actually, we actually conducted our own trials because it's wonderful having a romantic story of a village, and the village is real. You know, exists. There are 347 people over the age of 100. Um, but I really wanted to see that, um, number one, rosemary water, how it metabolizes and how it works. And, and, and if rosemary does what it says it does, you know, for millennia it's been talked about as a, as a memory enhancer. So we conducted trials at uh, Northumbria University with Dr. Mark Moss. And um, it went very well, actually. We, we were peer-reviewed. It gets published um, shortly. And um, we proved that by drinking um, the, the rosemary water... Uh, your memory improves um, by up to 15% and um, just 20 minutes after drinking it. So it, it oxygenates the blood to the brain. So it's quite a powerful um, herb, actually. Have you noticed anecdotal evidence in your own
0: life? Do you drink? Rosemary Water every day?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I drink it every day. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel it has a lot of other properties as well, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory and stuff. Yeah, I feel I feel better. I feel great. Uh, my wife drinks it every day. My wife's 21 years older than I am, and uh, she is sort of one of our best customers. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, 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 it's a very healthy drink. Yeah. yeah. And when you came to launching it, the branding side of it, yeah. you opted for the name number one Rosemary Water as opposed to just Rosemary Water. Yeah, so when we, we own the name Rosemary Water as a trademark, so nobody else can actually make it. But when I came to doing the branding, Rosemary Water seemed such a generic name mm. um, that we would be constantly fighting people making Rosemary Water. Um, so we decided on number one as a, as a brand name um, because we were the first. The, the drink didn't exist before we invented it. So we thought well, we're number one, so let's, let's call ourselves number one. So that, that's how it came about. Yeah. And as far as communicating that, that story, was it very
0: difficult to convince people?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we, we did it off the back of the story. The story came out in the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, it was on the BBC, and I didn't know at the time, but it went around the world. It was, you know, it was in the Huffington Post and New York Times and things. So we, we had a bit of bounce off the back of that story. Um, but, yes, you, you have two ways of really getting a brand across. You can use PR and editorial to do some of the heavy lifting on the story. And you can advertise, mm. and, and advertise being clever copy. So we had some pretty smart adverts to begin with. Yeah. Although I didn't know anything about advertising, so I didn't realise you couldn't advertise health claims. So we got a bit scolded by the ASA, which is a bit of a, a bruising battle, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you sort of learn as you go along. But, again, I just, I just didn't even... Completely naive, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Spent about a million pounds on advertising and then realised you couldn't do that. Yeah, there was a,
0: there was a great... Um, the first advert I saw of it was that kind of advert where the woman ages almost in reverse in a single shot. Yeah, that was great.
1: Like. So that's Daphne Self. She's the world's oldest working model. Um, and How old is she? She is 89 now, I think. Wow. We got Kevin Godley to shoot it. Now, Kevin Godley, is, he's a bit of a legend of, of, of uh, cinematography and videos. He does all YouTube videos. He did the first, probably one of the first videos other than the Queen one, Bohemian Rhapsody, where they wow. morphed faces. In, in It was called Cry. So Kevin's quite an old hand at, at, at doing videos, um, pop videos, not commercials. So we got Kevin to, to, to write this treatment, and he said, wouldn't it be cool if this woman was imagining her youth and we morphed her back from the age of sort of 80, 89 back to 20... 21 uh we'd use three different models all look the same in different stages of their life so you you come up from sort of behind um Daphne, and you don't realise she's old until she turns to camera, and when she turns to camera it's quite, wow, okay, this is a stunning looking old uh, woman in this sort of photo shoot, and then Kevin very cleverly, and it takes an awfully long time um, to do, morphs her back to a uh, a 21 year old in the 1950s, who then takes Rosemary and, and, you know, it's to Frank Sinatra's track, it was a very good year which was torture to get through the Frank Sinatra estate to get the uh, rights to, but we did it in the end
0: yeah but it was quite a controversial advert at the time. I suppose. It got banned. It was, yeah, yeah. Anything to do with aging and 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 any kind of health claim like that. But is it a case that no publicity? Well, the interesting
1: publicity? now the interesting thing about that advert is that it was cleared by Clearcast, um, and we had the conversation with Clearcast when they said, "It looks like this person is drinking water and going backwards in time sixty years in thirty seconds," mm. and we said. It's a commercial. No-one's going to believe that. You don't believe that if you drink Red Bull, you're going to grow wings. Mm. You know, there's a, a licence to advertise. And they said, okay, it would be better if she drunk the drink and got older. I said, well, who's going to want to buy a drink that you drink and you get 50 years older? So we had this sort of ongoing argument. In the end, they cleared it. And then it got um, to cinema. And then the ASA said they thought it was um, advertising health. So we couldn't, we couldn't do it. Which is a shame because it's a terrific advert yeah Um, but we have the ability to tweak it and then redo it and and relaunch it which we probably will and the latest campaign features yeah some quite remarkable, I
0: suppose, older models, you say.
1: Yeah, so Rosemary has a secret. So after the um, uh, battle with health claims, so you can't actually advertise health claims unless you have uh, a European Food Standards Agency health claim, which is a bit boring, but takes three years and costs lots of money. But by the time we'd have got that, we'd have been out of the EU, so it's a pretty pointless thing to do. So we decided, okay, how can we get the message across? So we thought, well, let's say that Rosemary has a secret. The secret is you don't really know how good it is for you. So Rosemary has a secret. We thought, let's use a person called Rosemary. So we'd create the character Rosemary. And it'd be Rosemary has a secret, Rosemary never forgets, Rosemary has superpowers, Um, using a sort of third person. So we cast um, Caroline who who wasn't really a model, but a stunning looking woman, 56 years old, runs a marathon every month, just very Rosemary. Um, And a guy, again, in his 50s, who was sort of like an original hipster look, you know? He's got long hair plaited, big beard, big white sort of beard, and they just look cool. They just look like a cool yeah. couple. Rosemary was definitely, you know, she wore the trousers. She was the power woman, and that's what we wanted. So yeah, the campaign was exclusive to Vogue originally, and we've run in Vogue all year. And Condé Nast, you know, they just loved it. We were sort of darlings of Condé Nast, and we ran it in GQ, um, and uh, obviously, obviously in Gentleman's Journal, <laughs> uh, and you know, the Rake and stuff like yeah. that. Just getting that message across, um, and yeah, it's a good campaign.
0: And as far as the um, positioning goes, it's mm. kind of there's a lot of specialist waters coming out now, but I guess yep. it's more expensive than your average bottled water. It's I think it's about three seventy five for a <clears>
1: seven <throat> for a big drink. bottle. Yeah, um, it's interesting making a drink. Um, it's it's actually quite an expensive thing to do. The bottle's expensive. I, I didn't know that you couldn't buy a white bottle. So when I said, I want a white bottle, again, everyone looks at you and says, oh, God, here we go again. You can't buy white bottles. I said, well, it's make really? one. So we did. Yeah.
0: There's no one else uses there's no other white bottles? Malibu's in only one I think Yeah, of. it's
1: wrapped in plastic. Though. Is it? So we, we spray our saying. bottles. Yeah. So the bottle's quite expensive uh, as, a, as a sort of lifestyle. So you, you kind of don't moan at Mulberry bags being 3,000 quid, but it's made of the same leather as everyone else. But anyway, we, we got a beautiful bottle. And I think what's important to understand is... Extraction processes are complicated and they're quite expensive. Marketing's expensive. But the drink itself, you know, it's it's a very, very healthy drink. It would have been easy to add citric acid to stabilize it. Most drinks have citric acid, it yes. tastes awful. Um, it, it, it add sugar, all those sorts of things. But we kept it as pure as we possibly could. And and it's expensive. We we, we buy a thousand kilos of fresh rosemary from Campania where the village is. We ship it back to Herefordshire, we extract it, then we bottle it and then we distribute it, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I think we the problem with our business in the drinks business is when you have economies of scale, when you're Coca-Cola and you're bottling a million bottles an hour, um, you could drop the price. Um, and eventually that's probably what will happen with rosemary water. Um, what would be your ideal kind of price point? To I enjoy? think a price point where people say that's a quality drink, not an expensive drink. future is a good example, you know, premium brand, they went uh, for three or four years, very high end, very expensive. Only in the last two or three years, they've they've dropped their price to below Schweppes now. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a journey you go on, and you have to understand. You know, we are spending millions of pounds to build a drinks company from scratch that didn't exist, and it's expensive. We know how quickly you would like to move your companies, um, and
0: usually I ask people where you see they see their companies in five years. But where yeah. do you see yours in kind of twelve
1: months time? Well, I'll tell you a story. I only wanted to, to make rose water because it was the only one with a story of, of, of a village in Italy. But every time I went up to the botanical scientists in Herefordshire, they'd say to me, you do understand there are other botanicals with extraordinary health properties. And I said, I'm, I'm just not interested. And they kept going on and on. They said, just come and try them. I said, well, first and foremost, only put in front of me what has a, a, a story of, of a, you know something that, that it does for you. And that it tastes good because I, don't, I, you know, I don't need to make a commercial drink. So I say in front of these um, scientists, and they put forward a, a, a bunch of other botanicals, which had the most extraordinary stories. One of which is, for example, is meadow sweet. Now I'd never heard of meadow sweet before. It's a fairly common herb, grows on the side of the road. Not only does it taste like honey, which is quite amazing, because no one's ever made it into a drink, and it's a natural sweet honey taste. But it's where they actually isolated aspirin from, um, mm, along with um, willow. And it, that's quite a short story because that is basically nature's aspirin. So Bayer, back in the uh, turn of the century, uh, isolated aspirin from this this plant and, and, and made, as we know now, aspirin. And in fact, the, uh, the Latin name for it is aspirinus. So Meadowsweet is nature's aspirin, and we are going to be making that into a drink along with eight other botanicals nine, including rosemary, all of which have very distinct benefits and do something very interesting with their active compounds. And we luckily uh, teamed up with the scientists at Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Now, Kew Gardens, I thought, was obviously a beautiful um, listed garden, um, but half of Kew is a very serious science faculty, and they are the top botanical scientists in the world, and they have authenticated all of our new extracts, and we will be launching a um, new range are uh, in Harvey Nichols and Harrods. Actually, today we launched at uh, in the Glass Temperate House at Kew.
0: Wow, there you go. It's
1: almost like we planned it. Yeah. <laughs> Good timing. Um, and what's the name of the range it's going to be called? We are going to be called Number One Botanicals. And it's a range of nine new drinks, or it's one drink with nine? Yeah, no, it's nine new drinks, each single extract drinks, um, ten including rosemary. So you've gone from one to ten overnight? Well, not only one to ten drinks, we're also launching botanical sodas. Okay. So we kept getting asked to do a soda-sized bottle in rosemary water by mixologists, because they love mixing. And there is a feeling in London that... A mixer like a a tonic has a lot of sugar in Yeah. So people quite like soda water. So we are launching all 10 botanicals in a soda range to be a mixer, Um, as well as the shots, which we do in Rosemary. So, yeah, we've gone from seven different varieties of one drink to 43 different drinks. So it'll be a a
0: cocktail that's good
1: for you, almost. You you
0: probably can't say that. uh, uh, Well... (laughs) But better for you than a gin than a. Gin-atomic. They have
1: distinct benefits yeah. and they are authenticated by the scientists at Q. And if you just look them up, you'll see. Yeah. You only have to Google all of these herbs to know that, you know, it was only the turn of the century that we stopped using herbs as medicine mm. because all of that millennia of knowledge, and we only had herbs as medicine. And actually, it's an interesting story. that The reason we use so many pharmaceutical medicines now is that after the war, we created the NHS, and the NHS had to mass-produce drugs for the nation. So they had to synthesise them. And at the, exactly the same time, there was a mass exodus from the country into the cities, and we lost all that ancient knowledge about herbal medicine. So those two events killed herbal medicine. But before that, people knew that sage or thyme or meadowsweet did what they did, and we've just lost that knowledge. And even now, 50% of all the drugs that we take are direct from nature as single extracts, just synthesized. So it is nature's medicine cabinet. Brilliant. I wanna
0: ask you quickly about your advice to other entrepreneurs, and especially sure. when it comes to one of the things that strikes me about you and all your different ventures that, you, that you've that you got amazing self-belief. But that's
1: kind of one of the hardest things to teach yourself, that kind of confidence. I think you, you do need confidence. And the thing with starting your own business, first of all, is taking that jump. That's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Um, But when you've decided to do that, you have to have confidence in what you're doing. But first and foremost, you have to get things done. I see so much sort of catatonic sort of people walking around with great ideas that don't actually do anything. You know, you have to get things done. And it doesn't matter if you do it right or wrong. It's getting it done. And it might not be perfect. And you'll break a lot of stuff along the way. But you have to plough on through and almost be so single-minded about things, about your vision and what you believe in, that you almost don't listen to to people around you. I mean, one of the biggest distractions you can have is running a company by democracy. I mean, I'm a great believer in someone who, you know, one singer, one song, you know, you have to have someone who makes the decisions. Because as these companies get bigger and bigger, and I've, I've built bigger companies, and you start sitting around boardroom tables, you never get anything done. Right. And when you're on entrepreneur and you start your own business, you have this wonderful time, and it only lasts about two or three years, when you basically make all the decisions to get everything done. And if you do it with conviction and do it quick enough, and you're well-funded, um, you can create magic. Did you ever have moments of doubt when you were kind of setting up either Rosemary or? I, I don't suffer from doubt, luckily. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do suffer from things like, you know, you can run out of money. Yeah, um, You can make... Bad, wrong turns. I mean, one of the first runs of the bottles that we did, 10,000 of them exploded in the uh, pasteurisation wow. machine because I bought the wrong bottles because I didn't <laughs> look at the spec and bought them too quickly. Okay. So you can make sort of fairly uh, bad mistakes as long as you can recover from yeah. them and dust yourself off and keep going. Um, but you make, you make you make hundreds of mistakes, but you make thousands of decisions. Fine. So it's just it's a war of attrition in yeah, a startup. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you've just got to plough on. And what are the biggest mistakes that you see young entrepreneurs make? Um, they listen to other people too much. You know, the terrible thing about social media, it sort of turns you into a bit of a sheep, really. And you end up sort of looking at what everybody else is doing and thinking that's the right thing to do. What I've learned in business is no one knows shit. Right. So you may as well have conviction in what you're doing and do it the best way you possibly can. You might fail. You know, people do fail. But if you start listening to every opinion, you will never get anything done. And you just have to make decisions. And it's a decision-making process and conviction of those decisions that make successful companies. I mean, Jeff Bezos, he had a vision. He wanted to build that. And let me tell you, he had his detractors. That company didn't make any money for a long time. He was building and building and building market share, knowing that when he'd finished his journey, he would control retail. And now he's the richest man in the world. And that is a guy who doesn't listen to anybody. Yeah. You know, you you look at some of these people, and one trait they'll have is um, they just they, they tend to be very singular in thought. And you're you're in a,
0: in a I guess quite a high growth area right now, which is yeah. health foods and the whole kind of wellness movement. Although that's got its detractors as well. Yeah. What what are the cliches and the conventions
1: in that industry that really annoy you? I tell you, the problem with with this this sort of movement is it's very easy to be pious about the environment, when actually when you get down to making things. It is incredibly expensive not to use plastic, for example. Of course. Everybody uses plastic because it's cheap. And we made the decision to use glass bottles, not plastic wrap bottles. And that costs money. And that's why the drink, uh, part of the reason why the drink is expensive. But they're decisions you make along the way, and you make them for the reasons that you want to make them. But they're not easy. And I think for people to stand there and go, Oh, you know, there's plastic in that bottle, or, oh, they've added citric acid. Yet the reason people add citric acid is because if you don't, you have to aseptically fill it in a vacuum, otherwise it grows bacteria. So I think the lack of knowledge frustrates Mm. me. Oh, is it organic? Well, actually, rosemary has no pests that eat it, so therefore it doesn't need pesticides, so actually it is organic, because they don't use pesticides to grow yeah. it but it's not organic <laughs> okay. well it's, that that I think is one of the most frustrating things yeah. is you sort of see people in Whole Foods looking at the ingredients not really understanding how challenging it is to make a product that is really really good for you and people get caught up on these kind of buzzwords and these trends yeah I mean I'm a great believer in not using plastic that's why we don't use it um, and I think it's very very important not to but there is a cost to that and I think consumers have to understand, mm. if you're buying glass, it's more expensive than plastic, so you're going to have to pay more. Yeah. And if you want a clear conscience about the planet, you've got to put your hand in your pocket. And I know you don't listen to other
0: people's advice, but was there a single piece of advice across your
1: career that really changed your life? Or uh, I did listen to one piece of advice from Sir Peter Ogden, because he's very clever. Um, and he said to me, if you continue and focus on one thing and do it consistently every day... For a relatively long period of time, you'll be successful. He said the minute he detracted into doing a bit of property development, a bit of this, the thing is with when you start a business, you get a million ideas thrown at you, a million opportunities, and it's that focus and single-mindedness. And that, I think, is, again, just going back to, just don't get distracted. Distractions are everywhere in business. Everyone's got an idea of how to spend your money, how to do this, how to do that. You know, just focus on one thing, yeah. do it well, do it consistently, do it every day, and just make it work. Yeah, and that is really the best advice I ever got.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Sir Peter because. Uh, do you think who you know is more important than what you know sometimes, and, and these contacts are more valuable than knowledge?
1: But I think it helps a great deal. Um, How do you build your network then? If it's one if of the, the ironies of life, isn't it? It's like going to a bank when you don't need money; they yeah. never lend it to you. And then when you've got loads of money, they start throwing money at you. <laughs> um, it's a bit like that in business. You know, when you start in business, you don't know anybody, and it's only through time that you build up networks. Um, you have to work at it. You know, mm. I was a judge after I won Entrepreneur of the Year, I became a judge on Entrepreneur of the Year. For the last three years and you, you judge other startups and then you get to know people and then people get to know you so that when you're going through your business life, you can pick up the phone to people. Yeah. As long as you, you know, that's why you should play a straight bat in business and be as nice as you can to everybody you can all the time because you just never know when you're going to go down a notch or need their help. So yeah, you build network. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Of course. It takes time and effort. Brilliant. And before we go, I want to ask you a
0: few kind of personal questions. We ask everybody, and they're quick
1: fire. So you have to be as honest
0: and quick as possible. I'll be honest with you. Okay. (laughs) Uh,
1: Who in the world of business do you most admire? Recently, Jeff Bezos, I think, is quite a cool, cool guy. I think he's a sort of slightly weird alien, but I do quite like. I I like his single-mindedness. A slightly weird alien. (laughs) He looks a bit weird, doesn't he? He's clearly not. Kind of like in in an intense way. Okay. Yeah.
0: What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't? doing this? I mean, Rosemary Walsh, not necessarily the podcast. I would probably like to have been a superstar DJ. Superstar DJ? You were a DJ for a
1: period. In I was a DJ. What was your DJ name? And when I was DJing... Oh, um, my joke DJ name <laughs> was DJ Double Deck Dave the Rave, which is the funny one. Um, what was your, your serious, your cool It was just my one? name. Dave... I, didn't, I was never known as Dave Spence Percival. I was Dave Percy, so that was my name. OK. And at the time when I was DJing, you know, it was the time of... The people that are now earning, you know, $250,000 a night pressing buttons and sort of sitting back and watching the crowd uh, be adulated by it. Um, I was at that time when I, when I, if I'd have been good enough, which I wasn't, yeah. really, I could have been. Yeah, I think it's a great job. They fly around a world on a private jet, work for a few hours programming, you know, a set and then sort of plug it in and off you go. It's yeah. great. What's not to like? Sounds
0: pretty good. you were also a, a break dancer at one point, weren't you? I was. We yeah. don't ask that question to everyone, by
1: the way. That's just. I you. was. Uh, I was in a break dance crew. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I thought it was a great way to sort of, um, you know, keep fit and battle out and sort of spray trains and stuff. I loved it. that's was great. <laughs> and you still whip out those dance moves from time to time. I can bust a move when I'm put to <laughs> put to the test. Yeah. In okay. fact, a friend of mine, how Donald from Take That, he's. a great breakdowns, much better than i am right and in much better shape um but yeah i'll have a battle with him
0: okay good um back on track what phrase or convention would you like to
1: banish from business there's so many i mean when you go and i had many businesses in america and they they do love that kind of you know wonderful sort of san francisco chat um gets a little bit nauseating sometimes um i think yeah there's loads. There's probably a whole book of them. Okay. Yeah, I try not to use them.
0: Right. Which
1: single thing are you most proud of in your career? I am very proud of this company. And the reason... And it's probably easy for me to say it now. I was very proud of winning awards in my last business, but I knew I could do that job. I'm really proud that I launched a drink that didn't exist, that's really healthy and people are loving. And I walked into Marks & Spencer's yesterday on Kings Road and saw my drink on the shelf... And it just filled me with immense pride. And I thought, wow, that was an idea in my head yeah. 18 months ago from an article I read, and now it's sitting on the shelf in Marks & Spencers. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's I, I, cool. I, that made me feel really good. And on the other hand, what's your biggest failure or regret so far? Not being a superstar DJ. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. There's still time, though. I'm not, D- not sure there is. <laughs> no. We never know. That could be the fourth career. never know. could be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. could we'll be more retirement
0: project. Um, what's your most treasured physical possession I know you've got lots of vintage cars is it one of those
1: oh gosh what a good question um, and
0: also I should add that you sold
1: almost all your possessions at one point I sold so you all clearly all cars.
0: not yeah. care too much yeah I
1: don't I'm, I'm not particularly materialistic I love materials things I build them up and then I sell them all okay um, I probably the one thing I sort of slightly covet I bought a beautiful David Lindley cigar box and actually it's a very very beautiful aesthetic thing yeah. and I kind of every time I look at it, I think, "Oh, that's really nice." That's just sort of something that sort of puts a smile on your face. Yeah. Um, but cars have come and gone through my hands like water, okay. and and I never look back. Uh, even though they're beautiful things and watches and all sorts, but houses as well. My poor wife did not want to leave <laughs> my last house. But anyway, for me, I don't. I'm not that hung yeah. up on possessions. And what's your personal motto? I'm not sure. I have a personal motto. Although okay. I do jump out of bed quite early every morning and sort of, you know, go and seize the world, seize the day. But I don't. I don't have a. I don't have a motto. I just plow on through, <laughs> working as hard as I can, trying to get everything done. Um, I try to be as good as I can, yeah. as ethical as I can, okay, um, and as fair. I think I have an innate sense of fairness, so I would say my motto is be fair. Okay. So. Wonderful. David, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurs, raconteurs and tastemakers. But in the meantime, you can read more at thegentlemansjournal.com or follow us on Instagram if you're so inclined, at The Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.